One thing that many of us were frustrated about was the, the lack of a sort of bigger vision in the budget. It was all about the bean counting of tax increases and spending cuts and not thinking about a broader agenda for growth, uh, particularly an agenda driven by, you know, well-targeted tax cuts, but also supply side reforms. Welcome to the IA podcast. My name is Matt Flesh, and I'm the head of public policy here at the IEA. Each week, this podcast asks a tantalizing policy question to a top political and economic thinker. Today's question, is the Auden Statement fair? I'm excited to be joined by Julian Jessup, who is the Economics Fellow at the IEA, as well as an independent economist with 35 years of experience across government and business. Now, Julian, before we get on to some of the discussion about the measures and the, the setting of the statement, I think the, the most striking announcement were some of the forecasts from the OBR yesterday. Uh, we saw some quite depressing figures about uh, a long-running recession, about real incomes being below pre-COVID levels for the next five years. And um, what, what, what kind of uh, trust should we put in these figures and what mm. is the state of the British economy? Well, first of all, I don't think we should put too much faith in the in the specific numbers. I mean, people get really obsessed by what, in the bigger scheme of things, are relatively small changes in in, in measured output in the in the economy. Um, but I think there's no doubt at all that we are heading into to some form of, of recession, however you you choose to to define that. Uh, and it's not just the OBR that's been saying that. I think almost any private sector forecast would would, would say that we're inevitably heading into recession. And if you look at business and, and and consumer surveys, it's pretty clear that you know the economy is heading for for a downturn. Um, even if the official numbers aren't telling you that we're in recession, of course, it will still feel like a recession to to many people who are struggling with the the cost of living crisis, um, and you know, in particular to pay essential bills uh, for food and, and energy. So we're on def- definitely heading into a, a pretty dark period. Um, to be a bit less negative, though. Um, I think that this recession is probably going to be a bit shorter and maybe shallower than than, than the norm. Um, that that's partly because a lot of it is driven by very high inflation, and there are good reasons to think that inflation is going to drop off pretty sharply. Uh, it's also an unusual recession because unemployment is very low and likely to remain relatively low. So that's the difference from the the stagflation of the of the nineteen seventies. Uh, and interestingly, and finally, the the OBR's numbers that were were published alongside the budget were actually a bit less pessimistic than those that have come out um, only a few weeks before from the Bank of England and. Uh, actually, the the autumn statement itself was partly responsible for that because it did provide a bit of a fiscal boost to the economy this year and next. Yeah, I'm interested in uh, the divisions between those those two different estimates, which I, I suppose kind of tells you on the length of this recession, which we seem to think we're in. Uh, you know, you you're more or less making it up. You're not exactly making it up, but you're more or less making it up, or or it's very dependent on the assumptions going forward. Um, I, I think there's an interesting question here though, as well about um, what has driven us into this recession. So I think that the number one factor seems to be uh, the, the war with Ukraine, the terms of trade shock. Uh, we then also have a hangover from, from COVID and, and perhaps supply chain issues. We have a lot of people who've, who've left the workforce in the UK uh, due to long-term sickness or retirement. And on top of that, we have this inflation issue, uh, which the Bank of England, um, we think, fueled 
through very loose monetary policy. Now they're having, because they, they didn't put up interest rates soon enough, you could argue. Where, 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 what's to blame? You know, which, which one of those three factors do you think is, is most important? Is it a mixture of all three or is there something I'm missing? Yeah, well, it's worth stressing that this is very much a global downturn being driven by you know pretty similar factors from, from country to country. So I think we need to look for a global explanation. And the obvious one, as you say, um, is indeed inflation. Um, you know, inflation is, is high and, and rising um, almost everywhere, uh, at least in the Western world. The story is a bit different in, in, in China and, and Japan, but there are separate issues there. Um, the reason why inflation has taken off, I, th I think, is a mix of factors. I mean, partly it's, it, you know, it's a, a good news story that the world economy rebounded more quickly than expected from the COVID recession, partly due to the success of the, the vaccine rollout. So there was an element of, um, you know, demand pull inflation in there. Um, the second thing, though, was you know the cost push inflation, you know, particularly the rise in in energy prices, but but also the fact that you know supply was still being constrained by lingering problems to do with COVID, including the increase in the number of long term sick people in the UK, but you know disruption to supply chains from China, China itself still being in lockdown. And then the third factor, the one I think we don't pay enough attention to, is the role of central banks, um, not just keeping interest rates very low, but also printing enormous amounts of money. And I think if it hadn't been for all that money printing, then increases in inflation in some areas, you know, food and energy prices, would have been offset by much lower prices elsewhere. Um, so central banks basically provided the monetary conditions that allowed inflation to take off because of those supply and demand pressures. Um, the good news, though, is that all of those factors are starting to, to reverse. So so the global economy is slowing. That's not a good re good thing for other reasons, but it's going to reduce the, the demand pressures on inflation. Uh, the supply pressures are starting to ease. So if we look at you know commodity prices in particular, including natural gas, those prices have fallen pretty sharply. So have wholesale prices of food and global markets. Uh, and finally, the central banks are starting to wake up. So we are starting to see interest rates return to more normal levels and and banks start to scale back uh, the quantitative easing, in some cases going the opposite way, in a quantitative tightening. So, um, you know, selling back the bonds that they had bought previously. Um, so I think there are good reasons to expect inflation to drop sharply next year as those factors kick in. But in the short term, we're seeing a position where, you know, central banks are tightening monetary policy. Inflation is very high. Uh, and a tiny minority of countries, I think pretty much one, <laughs> Uh, namely the UK, is, is planning to tighten fiscal policy as well. So it's understandable why the economic outlook over the next year or so is still pretty gloomy. Yeah, let's let's get on to that. So the, the very much the context of this autumn statement was uh, mm. there's a very tough decision to be made. There's a 55 billion uh, pound black hole, as it was said. I think it's worth unpacking what, what they mean by a black hole. And mm. um, there, there needs to be some fiscal responsibility to, uh, some have argued and Labour Party is still arguing, clean up the mess caused by mm. the mini budget in September. What is the truth in terms of what Jeremy Hunt was looking at when, when he came to power? Uh, or, or yeah. when he was working out the statement, is it about those global economic factors, or mm. is it about the mini budget? Um, and then have they kind of made the right response to to what that kind of fiscal situation is about? Well, let, let's start with quite a long list of ifs here. I mean, if you believe that there is a fifty five billion hole in the public finances, and if you believe it's necessary to to close that in order to restore market confidence, and if you believe that's best done through some mixed package of of tax and uh, tax increases and spending cuts, then I think the autumn statement actually probably made the the best of a of a bad job. I mean, the 
there were a few positives in it, or at least things that might otherwise have been a lot worse. So um, most of the tax increases and spending cuts are backloaded into the the end towards the end of the five year forecast horizon. So they're not going to immediately hit growth now. Um, there's actually a bit of spending increase in the short term, mainly to do with cost of living support and the and you know helping people with their energy bills. So it might mean that the the hit to the economy is a bit less in the short term than it it would otherwise have been. Um, but if I if I go back to those ifs, there, there are question marks over all of them. Um, I mean, the, the so-called 55 billion black hole, um, I mean, that's just a number. I mean, it's it's dependent on all sorts of assumptions, including five-year forecasts for growth and inflation, which we know will almost certainly be wrong, and assumptions about interest rates and, and about commodity prices. In, indeed, since that forecast was made, um, interest rates have, have actually fallen. That's the interest rates that matter on, on long-term government debt in particular. And that's probably reduced the size of the fiscal hall by about 10 billion. Just, just because of a short-term move in the market. Um, it's also worth stressing that you know, th there's more than one way to fill a fiscal hole. And I think one thing that many of us were frustrated about was the, the lack of a sort of bigger vision in the budget. It was all about the bean counting of tax increases and spending cuts and not thinking about a broader agenda for growth, uh, particularly an agenda driven by you know, well-targeted tax cuts, but also supply-side reforms, you know, whether that's housing market or childcare or anything else you might care to think of. It, it was all very much about balancing the books in a very sort of abacus economic sense. Yeah. And if it sounds yeah. like I'm echoing some of the language of, of, of Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng, that, that's deliberate. I think the, the pendulum has swung too far from, you know, a pro-growth strategy that was, you know, well-meaning and I think fundamentally sound, but but badly done back towards the old orthodoxy of, you know, balancing the books through austerity that may well prove to be counterproductive. Yeah, you know, I think we're in this intriguing situation where there is a bit of a disconnect between what, what the government's doing and what they're saying. So certainly taxes are on their way to a 70-year high, but at least in the next three years, we're actually seeing some quite substantial spending increases, as you've said, on the energy package uh, and other support measures, as well as putting up funding to the NHS and education. So at the same time as putting up taxes, it, it feels more like, at least in that three-year period, it's a very redistributive budget. It's a very kind of, I could see the Labour Party getting up and, and putting this up, this kind of budget, and the mm. Conservatives saying it's it's too big government, it doesn't encourage entrepreneurship and, and uh, economic growth. It's... it's um, attacking the wealth creators with all sorts of um, tax increases, uh, like freezing the thresholds, um, like reducing the 45p additional rate uh, by changing on some of the, the um, measures in terms of dividend allowances and, and, and whatnot. So that that's next three years. Then there's this kind of yeah. At the at the four and five year mark, we're suddenly going to see the government taking all this fiscal responsibility, as you've said, very much dependent on uh, the the idea of ticking the fiscal box hole to say that um, we're going to have debt falling as a percentage of GDP in five years time by 0.3%, as if anyone believes that, that such small specific numbers are uh, that far in advance or in any meaningful sense. So what the government, I think, has actually done in the short run is a, a very... Um, big state budget uh, to to tick off a lot of boxes. You know, we've got this rhetoric around, well, what we need here is a responsible budget. Uh, you know, we're going to make tough decisions, but it doesn't really feel like they've made any tough decisions. They've, they've pushed tough decisions out long into the future, whilst in the short run, trying to keep everyone happy, except for the people who actually pay taxes, who are going to have to mm. pay a bit more. Well, some very good points in there. It, I mean, reading some of the, the commentary over the last uh, 24 hours or so, um, 
lots of people are actually quite confused what to make of this budget, um, including sort of many people on the on the left. You know, is this a is do they approve this budget or, or is this or an evil austerity budget or is this a high tax budget? Or they, can't, yeah, it, they can't quite work it, it out. Yeah, it, exactly. If you just present with the bare facts, then it's hard to guess. You know what what political party the chancellor just presented this package is is actually from. I mean, certainly big chunks of it that are very much the sort of thing that that Labour would have done. So. You know, extending the the windfall tax all the way out to, to 2028, which is getting a bit silly. I mean, if, even if you believe there was a windfall that needs to be taxed, do you really think that windfall is still in place many years in the future when the energy crisis, crisis will, will have passed? Um, lowering the threshold at which people start paying the 45p upper rate of, of income tax, I, I think is is almost just symbolic. I mean, it's only going to raise a small amount of money, if, if any. Um, and it maybe does send a signal that you know those on higher incomes will be paying paying a bigger share of the of the taking a bigger share of the burden. But um, it also you know, adds this sort of negative signal that you're sending to to people on higher earnings who who, who often have more flexibility about their choices about whether to uh, to work or retire or be, you know set up new businesses or or indeed whether to work in the UK at all. So. It, it's a it's a negative measure as far as the supply side of the economy is concerned for potentially only a very small gain in, in revenue, if, if if any at all. So there are lots of aspects of the autumn statement. They're very much sort of, you know, labour, you know, bash the rich rather than rather than I think really, really thought through um, on the fiscal rules. I think I think actually to be fair to to Jeremy Hunt, he, he has followed what uh, Kwasi Kwarteng was was promising to do, which is to extend the period over which we assess uh, the path for, for debt and, and borrowing. So instead of worrying about getting debt falling over three years, now it's over five years, which I think is is more sensible. Um, there's no particular magic level for debt, and I don't think we're, we're really near a danger level, but most economists would agree the important thing is to prevent debt from rising a lot further and ideally having it falling, which is what this, this package on paper does. Um, but it, it still leaves lots of lots of oddities as you say the the main if impact of the the tax increases and spending cuts will come after the next general election so it's not certain that they're even going to happen um it could be suggested he's just leaving a you know a trap for the for the next government which may well be a labor one um there are suggestions that this is all about restoring credibility in the markets but you know frankly markets were already pretty pretty stable before the autumn statement the to the extent there was a, you know, a premium in there in bond yields in particular for the quasi quarting uh, mini budget that had already gone um nobody in the in the markets nobody in the city was screaming for big tax increases or, or spending cuts so if this was a statement to or for the markets then i don't think the markets really cared politically it's clearly not done well um i think the only newspaper that's had a positive headline today was the the daily express which was pleased about the indexation of the state pension to inflation but everybody every other newspaper whatever their political perspective was focusing on the tax pain so even if those tax increases are not coming straight away i still think they're going to weigh on consumer confidence and uh, and then businesses, although there weren't any major massive changes in, in business tax in this statement, remember they are facing the increase in corporation tax in, in April, which you know is, is is just daft. I mean, that is definitely damaging to, to business confidence, to investment in the UK, to our, our global standing at other time when other countries, even the likes of France, are looking to lower the burden of corporation tax. So that that 
Oh, it's a, it's a strange, a strange statement. Some some good bits, some bad bits. Um, but but overall, I think it's left a lot of people thinking. Oh, I don't feel any happier after this than than I was a few days ago. Yeah, I'm kind of interested uh, in unpacking a little bit the kind of redistributive elements of this and and what this kind of, what this effectively says about the, the the social contract. I think there's a lot of sense from younger people, um, particularly you know younger ambitious entrepreneurial people who you know work hard, they go to university, um, they they end up you know getting a kind of decent job in a city in the UK. But what they're going to find from this budget is, is probably somewhere approaching a, a 50% um, marginal tax rate, particularly once they include their, their, their university fees uh, in the mix. They're not going to be in any position to, to lay down roots and, and buy a home because, as you've said, there's not really much in, in here when it comes to planning reform. Instead, the government's choosing to, as you've said, put up pensions quite substantially by uh, 10% mm. along with inflation. On top of that, they're giving out, uh, uh, what was it, 150 quid uh, pensioner payment for, for no other reason than it seems to be to tick a box. But, of course, we know one third of pensioners are millionaires, so they're literally giving money to, to millionaires just because they happen to be over a certain age. It, and at the same time, uh, we're putting money into the NHS. That's that's generally beneficial to, to older people. Uh, we're not reforming the NHS or improving the service or improving the efficiency. You know, it seems like the whole the whole kind of package here is is very much um, tagged towards uh, a, a, again a, a redistribution between generations as much as it yeah. is um, bet between the workers and uh, and people who don't work. It, it seems like almost a, a, a fundamental unfairness. Mm. in this budget in in the way that the who they've chosen to help because that's mm. again it's a path of least resistance but it doesn't necessarily feel like the right path uh for, at least in my mind yeah i well you're right there's a lot of nonsense spoken about inequality uh, in in the uk if you look at the the actual numbers income inequality has has barely changed over the last decade or two um however wealth inequality has increased and there are a number of drivers for that. Actually, probably the most important, as in so many cases, is, is what's happening to the housing market. So the fact that you know house prices have risen a lot, obviously that helps people who, who own houses and they tend to be wealthier people. So that, that's a big factor. And you could do an awful lot there by you know, getting house prices down by building more. So again, that's an example of you know, how a, a structural reform, in this case to the planning laws, could, could help tackle um, inequality there. Um, another factor, though, has been the the triple lock on the on the state pension. So th this is the idea that the uh, the state pension always rises by the uh, by the, a minimum of of two and a half percent, or the increase in inflation, or the increase in in, in average earnings. And um, over time, what that has is sort of a ratchet effect that you know basically pensioners are protected on the downside. You know they they always get a minimum of two and a half percent, but they always gain on the on the on the upside because they always do you know do well if um, um, if average earnings are higher, if inflation is high. So at some point, the pensions triple lock has to go. Otherwise, we'll be spending almost all of our national income on 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 paying state pensions, including, as you say, in many cases, to to people who who, who don't really need it. So at some point, the triple lock on state pension has to go. My preference would be simply to replace it with a a double lock of maybe two and a half percent and and inflation dropping the earnings link. Um, and also to put a bit more effort into means testing. Uh, uh, pensioner benefits. I wouldn't necessarily means test the the pension itself, but I would certainly put more effort into making uh, improving the the means tested 
pension credit, which is a top up to, to state pension. I think we should put more effort into that as a way of getting money to people who, who really need it. Um, but there are a whole host of things that, that, that need tackling that are very difficult to do because, as we know, you know older people uh, tend to be more active politically, more likely to vote, and in particular, more likely to vote for the Conservative Party. So that, that's undoubtedly a constraint that a Conservative Chancellor in particular is going to be facing. Sorry, I misspoke. It's actually a £300 payment, not a £150 payment. But I'm kind of interested in the reason why I think we can end up in a lot of these conflicts is because we've got such a low growth economy. The, the fact mm. is the economy is, uh, growth has been anemic for the last decade. We're looking at another real terms fall uh, in income over the next uh, period. Uh, it's it's kind of like quite a depressing picture in that sense. Now, that this was the kind of the final part of the budget, which is was meant to be this kind of uh, answer to the growth question. I was wondering what you made of that section. There was a lot of focus on uh, boosting skills, on HS2 and other infrastructure, on public R&D funding. Uh, the government's continuing with leveling up. That's the kind of Whitehall choosing to hand out um, money to certain uh, favoured projects uh, in, in parts mm -hmm. of the country. Uh, a bit of talk about subsizing innovation, the DMU. Uh, what, what do you make of the, the, the kind of a growth approach of, yeah. of Hunt and uh, Rishi, particularly, I suppose, versus um, mm. Quasi and Liz? Well, I, I mean, currently, there, there is quite a bit of overlap. I mean, large parts of the uh, the growth plan, um, as it was from, from Trust and Quartain, does seem to have survived in, in some form. Um, and if I, if I'm being optimistic here, to use sort of you know simple analogy, you know the, the tortoise and the and the hare. Maybe you know Liz Truss and Quartin Quartin were the hare who who tried to do too much too quickly, and in particular, you know rushed to to do big tax cuts before they uh, you know, really developed the supply side program, and you know that that we know what happened there. Um, whereas in contrast, you know, Hunt and, and particularly Rishi Sunak, I think might be might be the tortoise actually wins the race. I, I, I do believe that. Uh, Rishi Sunak in particular is at heart a, a, a free marketeer. He certainly talks a good talk um, about supporting you know, free market policies. He, he was originally a Brexiteer and uh, pushed the idea of free ports in particular. Now, um, I mean, all of us will have some, some problems with you know, particular parts of, of, of that programme, but um, it may well be that having got a degree of political and market stability now, we do have a a sounder platform over the next few years for for making the sort of supply side reforms that are necessary to to close that productivity gap and 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 to get you know trend growth up again. Um, big problem though, as ever, is is is, is the politics. We, we know that an awful lot of this stuff is 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 going to be very difficult to get through in a, in what's going to be a very awkward couple of years before the next election. Uh, planning reform being the prime example of that. You know the number of Conservative MPs objecting to. Uh, to development in their area, whether that's you know housing or, or infrastructure or you know it's something to tackle the problems on energy supply. So um, I, I think what we've seen in terms of the restoration of a bit of political and um, market stability is a necessary condition for uh, for stronger economic growth and for for getting those supply reforms through. But clearly not a sufficient one. It does require a lot of political will and. Uh, all sorts of areas of it. we're seeing pushback against that. I mentioned planning reform. Another is people now moaning about the the trade deals we've done with Australia because you know they they allow us more access to 
uh, you know, cheaper imports of Australian food at some point in the far distant future. Um, now that's class classic protectionism. You know, the whole point is to is to help consumers, not to protect particular types of producer in the UK, uh, even you know Welsh farmers. So I, I think we have made a bit of a step forward in the sense that we now have a bit of political and market stability. But whether the politicians really have the uh, the guts to to take advantage of that platform, I'm really not sure. Well, Julian, on uh, that slightly pessimistic or hopeful note, depending on whether or not the uh, anti-growth coalition, as, mm. as they've uh, now been labelled, can be defeated. Thank you so much for joining the IEA podcast. And if, if you are enjoying, please do subscribe on your chosen podcast provider or to the IEA's YouTube channel. And if you'd like to, to support the IEA, please do visit IEA.org.uk and you can become a, a Patreon for special benefits. Well, if you enjoyed that conversation, why not watch one of these other videos? And while you're here, remember to hit the subscribe button and the notification bell. That way, you'll never miss out on a single IEA broadcast. <laughs>